Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Hello, and welcome back to New Books in German Studies. I'm Ryan Stackhouse. Today, we have the pleasure of speaking with Volker Berghahn about his new book, Journalists, Between Hitler and Adenauer, From Inner Emigration to the Moral Reconstruction of West Germany. In it, Berghahn provides an in-depth examination of journalism from the late Weimar period through the post-war decades. Told through the biographies of three internal emigrants who went on to influential post-war careers, The book explores both the role of German media wrestling with the Nazi past and perennial issues surrounding freedom of expression in both dictatorial and democratic societies. Journalists Between Hitler and Adenauer is available from Princeton University Press as of 2019, and we are fortunate enough to have Volker Bergkahn here to chat with us about the book today. So, without further ado, Volker, welcome to the show. Thank you. Before we get into the book, It's always interesting to hear how someone finds their way to history as a calling. What was your path? Oh, well, that's a long, long story, I'm afraid, Brian, because I grew up in Germany. I was born in Berlin and grew up in Hamburg and started my studies at uh, Göttingen University in Germany. But then I was very fortunate to get a scholarship to go to the United States just as a year abroad adventure, if you like. But uh, they sent me to Chapel Hill. And in the 1960s, Chapel Hill was a very interesting place because of the civil rights movement there. And I liked it so much and found it so interesting as a young European that I stayed for a second year because I'd also clocked up some graduate credit and was able to finish with an MA. And with that MA, rather than staying in the United States to do PhD here, I was fortunate to be able to go to London University where I did my PhD. And after I'd finished that PhD, I went back to Germany because my parents said, oh, Volker, don't you want to come back? And I did because in Germany, if you want to teach in a university, you have to have an additional postdoc qualification called Habilitation. And that's what I finished And when I finished, I didn't like the German university system. So I went back to England, and my first job was at the University of East Anglia. Then I had another job at the University of Warwick. And when Mrs. Thatcher was very unkind to British universities in the 80s, Brown University offered me a job, and we went to Providence. And then 20 years ago, exactly, I came to Columbia University, mainly to teach German history, actually. What about this book specifically? How did you come to the subjects that you're writing about in Journalists Between Hitler and Adenauer? Well, it's another intriguing story because I have been interested mainly in German history, modern German history from a structuralist perspective. But then I became interested in biography because I think that's a very interesting way trying to Uh, look not only at the experience of individuals, but also to try to contextualize their experience. And I was then offered in the 19, well, it must have been about 1910 or so, whether I would like to write a biography of Marion Countess Dönhoff, who is one of the people in my book. And I said, oh, she lived uh, until she passed away at 92, and she's too difficult. I can't do her. So I persuaded the executors to let me see the papers, but to do a study of her as a major journalist in West Germany after the Second World War. But since I grew up in Hamburg, as I just mentioned, mm-hmm. I became interested also in Hamburg as a media metropolis and also in some other journalists who were part of her generation and became very influential after 1945. So I decided to do not just this one individual, but to do a more collective biography, because that would enable me to say some bigger things and also some uh, contextualized things 
about Hamburg as a media metropolis and about journalists after the Second World War. So that's how this became a study, not just of one person, but of a group of person and their publishers, all centered around this media metropolis, Hamburg. Well, on that note, what's the bigger picture that you're dealing with? You have these three research questions and, of course, the tensions around freedom of the press that you would explore. But at the end of the day, what is it that you want the reader to walk away from this book bearing in mind? Well, I try to conceptualize this, of course, and uh, as a result, I came up with two perspectives that I tried to set out in the introduction of the book. The first one is to talk about inner immigration. What does it mean? And I was, of course, faced with these three journalists I'm focusing on who were all born before 1914, were therefore adults in the Weimar period when I think you had a parliamentary democracy, although it didn't work all that well. But nevertheless, in 1932, they observed what was going on in Germany from an adult perspective. But then all of a sudden, in January 1933, they were confronted with a dictatorship. The Hitler regime had come to power, and within a short time, as you know, it created a one-party state. Uh, The um, censorship was introduced. Uh, The uh, Jews, but also journalists, were persecuted, and it was a totally different system. And that is why I then became interested in this concept of inner immigration, because like many millions of Germans, the Germans at that point in 33 were confronted with three alternatives. Either they could join the party and make their peace with the movement, or they could, or in many cases were forced abroad, um, would have to immigrate. The third position was to go into the underground and try to resist the system. And in fact, I did a very interesting study on Mannheim, the industrial city of Mannheim on the Rhine in the 1960s when we interviewed the widows of former socialists and communists who had gone underground in 1933. But of course, the Gestapo very quickly caught them and most of them were executed or sent to a concentration camp. And the question, therefore, we investigated in this study was to talk about why these people were so courageous, they knew this was a lethal regime, why they were so courageous to go underground and to daub anti-Nazi slogans on factory walls. And it was really a very primitive operation, but very courageous. And then the fourth position was those who were anti-Nazis in 1933 and didn't want Hitler in power, but didn't want to emigrate, didn't want to go underground, but also didn't want to join the Nazi party. And that is the inner immigration theme that I'm interested in. It hasn't been covered very much because ultimately there weren't all that many people. But the interesting thing about these people is that they moved, as I tried to argue, along a spectrum of experiences. If they were anti-Nazis, obviously they were very cautious at first, were wondering how long this regime would last. And then they tried to accommodate themselves to some extent. And I tried to explain that they moved in a gray zone, which is actually a concept taken from Primo Levi, because he felt that the predicament of many victims of National Socialism, mainly the Jews, and uh, Primo Levi himself, was that you uh, were, of course, under constant threat and tried to accommodate yourself to some extent with the regime, but at the same time were opposed to it and resisted it, whether it was in a camp or whether it was in public life in the 1930s and 1940s. So I hope you can see that uh, this inner immigration issue really raised a major problem about the reaction of many Germans in the 1930s. There's also this element of generational history in here as well. With the group of people that you're exploring, this idea of internal emigration. So who were the generation of 32 and what distinguishes them as a cohort? 
Yeah, good question. Well, <clears throat> uh, first of all, I have been interested in generational research, which was first started by sociologists, of course, already in the 1920s. Karl Mannheim is very well known for this. And it seems to me it's a very interesting way to look at social, economic, political change in a society. And I think we now use the term the gen millennial generation, the gener X generation, etc., quite a lot to try to define what kind of an age we live in. And that was also the question in the 19, uh, uh, after the Second World War in Germany, because there was a generation of 1945 that uh, had lived in the Third Reich but had made their, it, their peace and now tried to resettle in this post-war German Republic. And then you also had, and that's the most famous generation also in this country, the generation of 68, the flower power people uh, and also the resistance then to the Vietnam War, etc. So I hope you can see that the generational perspective is very interesting. However, I then bent the rules a little bit and invented this generation of 32 because, as I said earlier, my starting point was to look at the situation of Germans who were not Nazis, who didn't want to go abroad, who went into immigration. How did they react to this? And I was interested in adult Germans, not youngsters who were perhaps easily persuaded to join the Hitler Youth or some other organization, but they stayed apart and went into inner immigration. And I am therefore interested in this generation that was born before 1914, but I didn't call it the generation of 1914, which would be the appropriate term because that's when they were born, but rather the generation of 32, which gave me a chance to raise this question where what happens if one day you live still in a parliamentary republic? It's pretty chaotic, admittedly, and there are many questions about that republic, but then the next day on the 30th of January 1933, you are suddenly faced with the Hitler regime. And how do you negotiate this transition? And that's what I felt my three journalists whom I wrote about were asking themselves, actually, what do we do now that we live under a one-party dictatorship? How do we react to this? And the problem with journalists is, of course, that they didn't have much wealth. They had had a salary, but they hadn't gotten many savings, so they couldn't really go into inner immigration, live off their savings, and that was it, and kept keep away from politics. But they somehow had to negotiate compromises also and try to keep alive economically. They had families also, and as a result of this, they suddenly were confronted with this question of how do we do we make some compromises with this regime? Uh, do we go underground, which they refused? So it's this terrible dilemma that you find yourself confronted with if you are in a regime all of a sudden that has concentration camps, that executes people, etc., as you say, at the core of this book are the biographies about the journalists and the networks that are surrounding them. Yes. Well, if I may, I would really like to start with Paul Zeta because he is the most fascinating uh, person for me for the, uh, the period of the 1930s up to 1945 because he was already the editor-in-chief of a relatively small middle-class paper in 1931-32 in Solingen, which is a famous town in the sort of rural area because this is, is a sort of steel-making town. And uh, while the communists were quite strong, but also the Nazis in that town of Solingen, they, uh, he also tried to sort of cater to the uh, work middle classes, uh, the bourgeoisie in that town. And in 1933, he was faced with this question, what do I do? Because the Nazis, the local Nazis, came to him and say, we now want you to tow the Nazi line. 
And he said, I'm not going to join the party. I'm not a Nazi. I've voted for Stresemann, the middle-class party in the 1920s and 30s, so I'm not prepared to do this. But they exerted pressure on him. That was so strong that he decided to resign, and through some personal contacts, he was then able to join the staff of the Frankfurter Zeitung. And the Frankfurter Zeitung is a very interesting paper because it was not Nazified. It was did not become a Nazi paper in the 1930s. Rather, Goebbels, the propaganda minister, gave it a lot of leash because he wanted the Frankfurter Zeitung to be the international face of the Nazi regime where they would publish, of course, what was going on in Germany, but would also... Uh, make uh, write uh, articles on international affairs. So he had this leeway and, of course, wrote articles for this. And you may say, well, you know, he collaborated in a way. Uh, so it's this gray zone within which he moved because his articles were not Nazified. But at the same time, of course, he talked about uh, foreign policy, Nazi foreign policy, and appeasement and all the big issues of the 1930s. And in 1943 then, uh, when the Nazis tried totally to control the press, they banned the Frankfurter Zeitung and he was transferred then to Völkischer Beobachter, which was the Nazi paper. And he resisted and said, I'm not going to write articles for them but that is now the fascinating story, how he had moved from a sort of, if you like, gray zone collaborationist a position, uh, writing articles on uh, international affairs in the 30s, increasingly towards an anti-Nazi position. And he met a colleague who was working for a Swedish paper in Berlin, where he lived at the time, and they met and this man knew someone else who was in touch with Karl Gödler. Karl Gödler was planning the plot to kill Hitler, and eventually, of course, they tried in 1944 and failed. But this guy told um, uh, told uh, Zeta, "Well, if this coup succeeds, then I think Gödler would be interested in making you the editor." in chief of the post-plot paper that they, the conspirators wanted to establish. But the trouble was it was rather chaotic, and he never talked to Gödler, and as a result of this, this never, never got off the ground. But he was very fortunate because he didn't appear on any the list of names that Gödler foolishly kept, um, and w the names when they were found of ministers and people whom he expected to appoint once the coup had succeeded, well, his name was not on it. And as a result, he survived and helped this friend also who had put him in touch. And it's a pretty dramatic story how after the coup, he tried to rescue him and uh, prevent that he was tried. And he succeeded in the end. But the interesting thing now is that he felt the guilt of the survivor, a famous concept, I suppose, after 1945. And he said at one point, why wasn't I more courageous? I should have stuck my neck out much more instead of staying in the gray zone. And as a result of this, I uh, would have probably been caught on some list, but then I would no, no longer be alive. And it is this existential question that he faced, of course. Now, the other two people also faced this in a different way. So let me talk about, if I may, uh, Marion Countess Dönhoff. Well, certainly. But before we hop on to that just briefly, mm -hmm. you said that Seta was perhaps the most telling case in this book. That intrigued me. What makes you say that? Well, because his agonies, his dilemmas were perhaps most marked because he really argued with himself also, both before 1945, but then also in his letters 
after 1945, which he wrote to his wife and his sister and colleagues, where he constantly questioned himself, was it good that I went into immigration? Should I have been more courageous like these communists and social democrats that I worked on in Mannheim? But then, of course, he, it's very likely that he would have been caught and uh, would have been tried and executed. So it's this ex existential dilemma. Uh, and now, of course, Brian, also the consequences, the lessons that he drew from this, because I think that is where uh, the other two also come in. I'm not only interested in their reactions up to 1945, but also in the lessons that they learned and now try to apply in their newspapers through their op-ed pieces and through their articles, trying to put positions to the German readers that they thought they should all learn and take home from the experience of the Nazi dictatorship. The element of the moral reconstruction. Yes. So... Well, let me talk about the Countess Dönhoff first, because she was the youngest among those three I'm interested in, and therefore she retired into inner immigration by running the estate. She came from an old Prussian noble family that they had near Königsberg in East Prussia. And I think it was her brothers who said to her, well, you are a woman, you know, this is too dangerous to go into the resistance and therefore, she merely appeared on the fringes of the 1944 plot. Uh, her favorite cousin was caught and executed because he was one of the plotters, uh, Count Lehndorf. But she ultimately survived, but then also asked herself the question, you know, how courageous would I have been? Had, would I have pulled a revolver and killed Hitler if I had the chance to meet him? And these, again, therefore, are the interesting questions that uh, she asked herself after 1945. And if I may just move on to the third person I'm interested in, he's also intriguing. He was a Weimar journalist, very influential. He did not advocate a Hitler solution, but he was in favor of an authoritarian Schleicher solution. Schleicher was the war minister at the time who was toying with trying to transfer the republic into a more autocratic system because he thought that democracy had failed and was no longer working. And Zera, that was his name, was confronted with this now. Uh, he was a known anti-Hitler guy. What did he do? Well, he was afraid that he would be blacklisted because of his anti-Hitler positions before 1943, and therefore he escaped to a small island near the Danish border called Silt uh, in the mudflats of the North Sea, and he was out of the way of the Gestapo. Of course, they knew that he was up there. They, didn't, they found out about him, but they left him in peace. And that is where he tried to survive in a little hovel. He had to muck out stables and earn some money. But then, interestingly enough, he moved into the gray zone by writing a very unpolitical, uh, popular novel, which was published in the 30s. At the uh, head of it, he had uh, Percy, who was an Englishman, who was very wealthy and was traveling in Europe. And it was a sort of comedy, and it was very popular. It became a bestseller, and almost a film was made of it also. But in 1939, Goebbels banned this film, interestingly enough, because you couldn't have an Englishman as the main figure in a film that was made in 1939, when you know it was quite clear that the war would break out and Britain would be the enemy of Germany. So he had this um, interesting position throughout the war. He survived in the 1945. He turned up in Hamburg also and eventually ran Die Welt, which was one of the newspapers that the Brits, as the occupying power, actually founded in Hamburg in 1945. And he became a very influential op-ed editor-in-chief 
but this paper was run by Springer, Axel Springer, who was the uh, press mogul of Hamburg, a very powerful person, a little bit like Murdoch, perhaps, uh, in uh, the British, in English-speaking world. So, broadly speaking, then, we have the biographies of the three journalists now laid out in front of us. Mm -hmm. What distinguishes their post-war approaches and what unites them in their visions for the future or just the nature of their post-war project? Yes, very good. Well, the closest um, together were actually uh, Zete and Dönhoff because they ultimately worked for the same very influential weekly, Die Zeit, which exists to this day, and uh, they liked each other and pursued a sort of liberal conservative position. But since both of them had been on the fringes of the 20th of July 1944 plot, they felt that one of their major jobs after 1945 was to explain to their readerships that these plotters were not traitors, as they had been called by Goebbels and the Nazis, but they had been uh, representatives of another Germany that tried to establish also another Germany if this coup had uh, been successful. And as a result of this, I think you have this interesting struggle now of these two to try to explain to the German readers that they should recognize the plotters as moral people. And the important point here is, that's the subtitle of the book also, that they felt that Hitler and the Nazis had so fundamentally destroyed the uh, all values and norms in German society as a result of their mass criminality and their regime that you had to build... German society from the bottom up uh, because you had to restore the morals and norms and ethics that the Nazis had completely destroyed. And that is why they now became advocates of the recognition of the 20th of July plotters as the moral Germans, if you like, who had represented and stood for and lost their lives for the other Germany. And what is interesting is that German public opinion was quite opposed initially, actually, to recognizing these Germans. And therefore, when an anniversary came along, it took some time in Germany for these people to be commemorated. And both Dönhoff and Zeta wrote articles in the 50s then, when these became more topical subjects of another Germany. And that is where they uh, wrote articles. Sera um, was not directly involved in this because he, sitting in Zilt on this island, had not been on the fringes of any resistance movement. He had just kept out. And as a result of this, it's really these two people who wrote op-ed pieces and articles in the 1950s and 60s to try to get recognition of this other moral Germany uh, because they felt that they were the models to uh, be used for the reconstruction of German society. Perhaps I should add that uh, especially Zera, but also the other two, were religious people. And after 1945, you have this upsurge of interest in Christianity. Again, primarily the Jews, of course, had been murdered, and there weren't many left. But at the same time, Germans went back to church. They tried to forgive uh, each other for their sins. And both the Catholic but also the Protestant church had a very influential moral position also of reconstruction. And uh, Zera, being a Catholic, I think was deeply influenced by, by his Catholic upbringing and also tried to promote a conservative Catholicism in post-war Germany. But the other two, both being Protestants, were more interested in uh, the moral construction in a broader sense uh, to establish constitutional norms again, to make certain that the basic law of the Federal Republic, the Constitution, contained clauses of the freedom of the press, freedom of um, expression and uh, basic rights. 
So this is what they were also advocating in the 1930s, of course. So while religion is important for the very early post-war period, they began to talk more in general terms about the constitutionality, about civil rights, and the importance of rebuilding a new Germany. Sticking with the theme of moral reconstruction here for a moment, right? you focus on Sarah as a character, and the subtitle that you picked was revealing, struggling with past and present, and you say that he's a more complex character than he has been made out to be. Yes. What do you mean by that? But then also, if Dönhof and uh, Zeta are more focused on this concept of uh, reconstructing an almost constitutional understanding of morality, where is Serra fitting into this, particularly in the context of some of this is his late Weimar writing? Yes. Well, this is where I began to disagree a little bit with what other people have written about Serra, because while, as I explained before, he was uh, looking for authoritarian solutions to the dilemma of the Weimar Republic in 1932 and used his journalism for this. He was an anti-Hitler person, an anti-Nazi, and you know never joined the party either. And as a result of this, I think you have him, well, as a sort of more ambivalent person. He was a very religious person, but at the same time, he was not really... Um, he was a more conservative person. He didn't fight for the uh, the reconstruction in this moral liberal way that I talked about with regard to Dönhoff and to Zete. But nevertheless, I think he played an influential uh, position then and uh, situation in Germany in the 1950s and 60s. But his main theme, his other main theme, was really concerned also with what should happen to Germany as a society and as a nation within Europe. And he was also quite early among those, like Zeta and Dönhoff, actually, who were looking east and were wondering whether it was actually too one-sided if Adenauer, who was looking west and trying to connect with the Americans, of course, and trying to reintegrate West Germany into the Western community of nations, whether this was too one-sided policy. And therefore, all three of them were actually looking east and were wondering whether they should not try to sort of think in terms also of reunification of Germany. And this was the Cold War, as you know, while on the one hand, the Americans were very anti-communist, they were also talking about rollback, uh, rolling the Soviet Union back into Asia and liberating East Central Europe. And that is what they picked up and said, well, if that is the American position, shouldn't we try to continue to have contacts with the Poles and also the Russians and the Czechs and so on, and try to keep a dialogue going with the eventual hope that it would lead to national reunification in Germany, because there was the division, of course, and the Iron Curtain was strengthening and running right through the center of Germany, and they were all sufficiently, if you like, patriotic or national in order to dream also of a reunified Germany. And that is where all three came in, of course, with different positions. But Zeta was perhaps the most persistent in this because he opposed Adenauer very directly and said, you are too one-sided. We should also open up the dialogue with the Poles and the Soviets. And that ultimately cost him his career because in, uh, in after 1945, he became one of the editors of a still well-known West German paper, Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung, not Frankfurter Zeitung, but Frankfurter Allgemeine Zeitung. And he was ousted from this when he refused to toe the line and fall in with uh, Adenauer's Western policy 
but still said, well, we must look east. And Adenauer didn't like this at all. And ultimately, he used his power, but also the publishers of Frankfurter Allgemeine said, we must have a Western, pro-Western newspaper. We can't have this sort of looking east. And therefore, he then left and initially went to Springer because he knew Zera from the 1930s, actually, or 1920s, and tried to pursue this eastern line with uh, the Welt, Springer's paper, Zera's paper. But when they became, after a very strange incident, very anti-communist and tried to sort of destroy East Germany through their newspapers. Could you just expand a bit more on that? Yeah. What happened was that Springer, somehow being a very powerful press czar, became interested in this question of reunification himself. And he said, I think if I go and see Khrushchev, who had, of course, come to power in the mid the 50s in the Soviet Union, uh, maybe I can persuade him to open the door and to permit the reunification of Germany. So Zera and he went to Moscow hoping to get an appointment with Khrushchev where they thought they could persuade Khrushchev to uh, give the green light for German reunification. And they were kept in their hotels for two weeks and were fuming and furious. Why didn't they get this appointment? And then eventually they got an appointment with Khrushchev, but he then treated them as journalists and asked them, well, please, you know, talk to me. I don't want to negotiate about German reunification. I want you to interview me. And Springer was so furious after this that he, you know, said, well, the only way I can use my power and my influence in my papers is by uh, trying to undermine the GDR, the East German uh, regime, uh, so that ultimately the Soviet bloc uh, is collapsing and I will therefore fight the Russians also from ideologically and through my papers. And he actually moved his main office to Berlin. He was in Hamburg, of course, and he built a sort of 19-story building right next to the wall, the wall that was running by that time through Berlin, of course, and as a symbol, if you like, of Western press freedom and the challenge to the Soviet Union. So... I hope you can see that Springer, but also Zera, in a curious way, ultimately failed. And it was only in 1989 then that <laughs> the Soviet bloc was sufficiently eroded that it collapsed by itself rather than thanks to Springer and the kind of journalism that they had represented in previous years. And also a rather ironic symbol, considering the tension that it creates with Zeta and Springer, the falling out that they have. Exactly, because when Springer, after this disappointment in Moscow, where he wasn't received by Khrushchev, he became very anti-communist. And, you know, this is not what Zeta represented. He wanted diplomatic relations, negotiations. He wanted dialogue rather than cutting things off and building or strengthening the wall and starting a cold war again in the 1960s. So he went to Springer and said, well, terribly sorry, I, you know, I'm not really prepared to write for your paper any longer. And at the same time, he had gotten an offer from Die Zeit. And Marion Dönhoff, who was the editor-in-chief of Die Zeit, said, well, please join us. And that's very interesting now because it raises also another theme of my book, namely the role of the publishers. Uh, as I argue and as is, I think very well known, ultimately the publisher as the owner has the freedom of, of the press, uh, not the journalist himself. Because if a journalist disagrees with the basic line uh, 
on, of a particular newspaper, then he either has to toe that line or go elsewhere where he can express his opinions. And that was the predicament, of course, of Zete at the Frankfurter Allgemeine when he disagreed with his colleagues, but also with the owners of that paper and was ousted and moved to, uh, to Die Welt. And then in 1962, he moved to Die Zeit. And the interesting thing is here that while Springer and also at the Frankfurter Allgemeine, the owners exerted pressure on the journalists to toe the line, Butzerius, the owner of Die Zeit, was a different publisher. He actually always joined the editorial discussions when the paper was put together every week and participated, but then he didn't insist on his articles or preferences of articles being published, but he said, well, you decide democratically among yourselves what should come out, uh, what articles should be published in the next issue. And that is where Zeta, of course, felt very happy, because for the first time he had this freedom, this leeway that he had lacked under the Nazis, that he had lacked under uh, the Frankfurter uh, Allgemeine and also with Springer. And now, towards the end of his life, for the first time, I think he was a happy journalist because he was able to write the kinds of things that he genuinely believed in. But he made this very interesting remark being confronted with the power of the owner in the 1950s and 1960s. He says uh, the freedom of the press in Germany, but that also applies to other countries, is really the freedom of the publisher, the owner, to decide what is to be published. And then he added, this is uh, Paul Zeta, this is not Karl Marx. And I think this is a very interesting insight that he made and gave at the time, partly because of his own very personal experiences when he wanted to publish things that he, the publishers actually disagreed with. And therefore, he then passed away in 1965. He was, uh, no, 1967. He was, I think, a happy sailor towards the end of his life after all his struggles. But he tried to uphold this freedom of expression for the journalists. And that's his other contribution, apart from the moral reconstruction that he felt the freedom of the press was so fundamental to any society that you had to uphold it and even make sacrifices for his losing your job, moving to another paper if you disagreed with the publisher. So double back to Sarah here and the relationship with Springer after yes. the, shall we say, foray into international politics. Where where does the rift between Zara and Springer come from during this period of decline at the end of his life? As you examine him at the end of the chapter, you say the calm before the storm is sort of the culmination of his of his ideas as he grows through both this period in the wilderness on silt and then later as he uh, comes back into journalism in, in the post-war period. Yes. Well, uh, you are right. I think ultimately he was not a liberal person. He was a conservative person, very Catholic also with his beliefs. But uh, if I may sort of track back a little bit before I get back to this particular point about the books that he wrote and the essays that he published, of course, you also had a growing power struggle within the Springer Empire. And as he was ailing and you know, he had moved to Berlin where he had fond memories. He had bought a house in Berlin and was editor-in-chief still of Die Welt with its main headquarters in Hamburg. There were, of course, people who were beginning to uh, look after themselves and wonder, well, you know, should we not try to sort of contain him a little bit in his powers as editor-in-chief. And there were a number of people who then whispered into Springer's ear and said, well, you know, he is no longer in his prime and he is also ailing and is ill. He 
fell ill and had, you know, several operations. So there was a power struggle, and he noticed this, of course, and he noticed his vulnerability because if he was still supposed to be in total charge as editor-in-chief of Die Welt, then he really had to move back to, to Hamburg. But he didn't want to do that. And as a result of this, I think he became more and more resigned. And I was very fortunate to get hold through his family of the diaries that he kept in the last two or three years of his life in Berlin, where he expresses, on the one hand, his growing frustration and unhappiness with all the other people who are trying to contain him. But at the same time, he also thinks about his life and about the larger issues that had preoccupied him uh, as a journalist, and which he had written about much earlier, of course, but then published this volume of essays, uh, which he called Calm Before the Storm, because being a cultural pessimist, he thought that the 1950s and 60s were not all that wonderful, but that there were major problems down the road for Western societies. And that is what he ultimately wrote about and uh, had a rather pessimistic view in the end of the world. And if he were alive today, he would probably still be a pessimist and he would add to his arguments, his lines of arguments, the climate problems and you know all the problems that Western societies, Western democracies felt feel today because ultimately there was always a reservation in his rather elitist view of the world that you know journalists but also elite groups were more influential and should have more influence in a modern society than the so-called masses, masses in inverted commas, because he thought he had seen the impact of the so-called masses in the 1920s and 30s in Germany and what they had brought then to that country in the way of a regime that posed as a democratic regime, of course, but at the same time was of course, a dictatorial regime building up a facade of participation, mass participation, rallies, etc. But at the same time, of course, behind that facade, you had the brutal dictatorship. And I think here he sort of fell into line with a, a situation, with an argument that Walter Benjamin, the famous cultural historian and social scientist, uh, once made about fascism, namely that fascism gives people the sense of participation and uses a democratic principle, but when you look behind the facade, there is, of course, a brutal dictatorship. And that is what I think he took away from the Nazi period that uh, he had experienced also, even to the extent that he felt he had to flee to this island to be in isolation away from the masses who he argued in the 1930s were cheering Hitler and supporting him in all his domestic but also ultimately foreign policies leading to the Second World War. Did you have a sense then that he, had, he found it easier to make peace with the authoritarian elements of Adenauer's press policy of his foreign policy that uh, Zeta and Dönhof had more to take issue with? Good point. Uh, yes, it, tendentially I would agree. He you know, was happy with the conservatism that Adenauer represented because Adenauer, unlike these liberals that we've been talking about, thought that also that German society had been so fundamentally uh, unsettled by the Nazis that a reconstruction job ha also had to start from scratch. But he, as a Rhenish Catholic leader, of course, was particularly interested in preserving the conservative norms in German society or rebuilding them rather than to establish an open liberal society. And that is where you have this 
tension, of course, in all Western societies at the time, promoted also or reinforced by the vigorous anti-communism, that, of course, uh, the liberals always fought on a different front for a society that they had in mind, but the Rhenish Catholics and Ardenauern concluded, uh, included was a more conservative person domestically in domestic politics. In foreign policy, of course, he had this singular vision and mission to reintegrate Germany into the Western community of nations. And that is where I think he learned a lesson to some extent also from the First World War, because when he had been a politician, he was before born before 1914. Um, and he felt that Germany should have been reintegrated into the Western community of nations in the 1920s, but it wasn't. And as a result of this, you also have then this ultimately fascist backlash, the mobilization of the masses. So that's where his conservatism comes in. And I hope you can see how there is a certain affinity, perhaps, between the Catholic Zera and the Catholic Adenauer. But that's mainly in far, as far as domestic policy is concerned, because in foreign policy affairs, Zera also began to look east, and that is where his nationalism comes through, which dates back to the Weimar Republic also, of course, uh, because he also felt that this kind of a sense of national unity had to be upheld and promoted through the West German press because ultimately he dreamed, of course, of a reunified Germany. The interesting thing here is, however, that in the early stages, during this rollback phase, John Foster Dulles, etc., many Germans, including Zera, probably also Zeta and Dönhoff thought, that Germany could be reunified if there was a dissolution of the East Bloc in, within the borders of 1937. And therefore, they thought they would get their territories back. Dönhoff thought perhaps that she might get her estate back in East Prussia. But of course, as time went on, they began to realize that this was a totally unrealistic position and that if there was to be a reunified Germany, it would be the two Germanys, East and West, and the territories that the Poles had been given in 1945 or the Czechoslovak Republic, um, that was all lost and should be abandoned and should be given up. And that is where, of course, they had an affinity with Willy Brandt, the mayor of Berlin, who then became foreign minister and opened up German foreign policy towards the East in addition to, of course, always promoting still the Atlantic Alliance and the link with the United States. So I think that is where I think you have an interesting shift, but ultimately they all were sort of falling in with Brandt because when he opened, uh, made treaties with Poland and Czechoslovakia, etc., and opened up the East and also with the Soviet Union, Ultimately, of course, they also felt confirmed in their initial approach, their hopes and dreams of a reunified Germany, although it was no longer the Germany of 1937, but the Germany of 1989. So there is the liberal element of Zeta's vision that he finally arrives at, at Der Stern and Die Zeit. Yes. But... There's also a, a moral element in Dönhoff and also in Serra's work. I was particularly fascinated by the 12 hypotheses against extravagance <laughs> and, and sort of how those emerge from this mishmash of Atlanticism and Prussian values as she conceives of them. Could you, could you expand on those a bit more? Yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Well, uh, you know, officially because <laughs> both Serra and... Uh, Zeta passed away in the mid-60s, I wanted to use that as a time frame, 32 to 1967. Mm -hmm. But then I was confronted with her having passed away in only 2002. And I thought this was an opportunity to raise the question of continuities in 
fundamental attitudes and beliefs on the part of journal, uh, journalists, but also on the part in particular of Dönhoff. And I thought it was very interesting how once, of course, also Germany developed in a more neoliberal capitalist direction from the 1970s onwards, when you had Thatcher and Reagan in this country and the ideas of deregulation and uh, uh, the market dominating everything, that these ideas were also spilling over into Germany. And you had very similar tendencies, although they were never pushed as far as they were in the United States or in Britain under Thatcher and Reagan, or today, look at the situation today. But she became increasingly irritated in the 1990s by this neoliberal economics and the domination of the market, because she felt that this led to this growing divide between the rich and the poor. And she said, capitalism is out of control. We must civilize capitalism again. That's her main point in the 1990s, and that's what these 12 points are also about. And my interpretation is that she was not only disagreeing with economic policy in the 1990s when she was still writing for Die Zeit, but this is also where old Prussian values that she also articulates at that point come to the surface again, because Prussia, as you know, was supposed to be a very sober and down-to-earth society, which was very conservative and ultimately even anti-capitalist, because they were country people. And it's the old divide between town and country that I think also can be traced through her life, because towards the end of her life, she felt that these highly materialistic, modern, capitalist, industrial societies were no longer adhering to the values that she had grown up with as a young woman, as a girl on the estate in East Prussia, where they lived, of course, until they were ousted in 1945, when the Russians came and destroyed the mansion that they had there near Königsberg, and she had to flee to the West in order to build a new life. Well, at the close of the book, moving towards the conclusion here, you examine the networks of Hanseatic journalism and these five publishers and British press policy. Yes. I was just wondering, writ large, what do the stories of these five publishers reveal about the role of German media wrestling with the Nazi past and setting out a vision for the future in the post-war era? Well, um, you know, of course, that raises the whole question of the founding of the Federal Republic, uh, which was, of course, uh, opened up as a result of the German, uh, the Allied occupation. And once, of course, the Cold War had started and the division of Germany uh, was inevitable, I think you had uh, an important role of this new press, but of course it was the total spectrum also of opinion. You also had, it should be admitted, in the 1950s some neo-Nazi papers who did not want to go back to the Nazi period, but certainly reinterpreted Hitler and the Hitler regime in a sort of more contemporary way, but they were dreaming also of a nationalist neo-Nazi Federal Republic again. But then you also had at the other end of the spectrum also communist newspapers, but uh, they were banned in 1955 when the anti-communist um, uh, sort of suspicion became, uh, or the policy became so strong that uh, the federal government initiated a constitutional uh, suit against the um, the Communist Party and the Supreme Court of the Federal Republic eventually banned the, uh, the Communist Party. So, but then you have the spectrum in between from conservative liberal party uh, papers all the way through the middle and then ultimately to social democratic papers. You had the full spectrum of the press and that is of course also 
than what these three journalists ultimately fought for after 1945, because they had experienced a totalitarian censorship of the press, where freedom of expression had totally disappeared. Well, on that note, what does this book have to say about the role of media in society more broadly? Well, I have been reluctant to draw any conclusions uh, that uh, uh, make links with our contemporary situation. But I think I allude to this that, of course, all Western societies are now confronted with the pressures that they are newspapers, that they are still under uh, to sort of pursue a particular line. And I feel that given the hostility that uh, Trump in particular has shown towards the press, there is a major problem facing this country also, and that is the freedom of the press. But what is encouraging to me is that, of course, you don't have the one-party system immediately that you had in 1933, so that all papers were basically brought into line with national socialism and you had a little bit of Frankfurter Zeitung in inner immigration where they could express a sort of cautious uh, alternative view. But uh, at the same time, I think if you look at the New York Times or the Washington Post and the debate that is taking place in this country right now, I find it very interesting, especially in light of the les lessons that can be learned from the German experience. I don't want to draw too many parallels between the Weimar Republic and the United States right now, but I very much hope that this pluralism of the press can be preserved because at the moment I think we are, partly because of the polarization of society, in the danger of paralyzing our press system also by uh, the power of particular um, empires. I'm thinking of Fox News, which is, of course, being seen by millions of Americans, but that's, it seems, often the only channel or local channels that they get their news from. So there is a sort of one-sidedness that I think influences the attitudes of many and therefore, I'm glad that there are still alternative voices, which, of course, you didn't have in Germany anymore in the 1930s. Well, that does it for the book. But before we finish, what is it that you're working on now? It, it's not a study of journalism, some sort of sequel to this, although I have been wondering to whether I shouldn't do something on the evolution of this society uh, since uh, Reagan and Thatcher, but mainly in sort of economic terms, a little bit like what I talked about or what uh, what uh, Dönhoff talks about, uh, how this economy has led to uh, sort of dislocations in this society, which is expressed by the scissors between the rich and the poor widening all the time. And I think uh, there is, of course, a topic that I could pick up. But to be very honest, historians are always very cautious when it comes to predicting the future. Mm -hmm. uh, you know, I think you have uh, come across historians who tell you we are, of course, concerned with the past and we are interested in what kinds of insights can be gained from the past, both the positive, but also the negative aspects that we can gain from studying the past. But when it comes to the future, I had a colleague in Britain who always said, well, if you are interested in the future, go to the political science department. And if you are interested in blueprints, go to the engineering department. Mm. And that is, I think, a position which I think many historians take up, and that's why they are so cautious, perhaps too cautious, because unfortunately, as you will have seen in the press, history as a discipline is actually losing out. And uh, therefore, I think overall, you have a problem with this discipline, and I hope it can 
revive itself and rescue itself from this decline, which at least according to uh, registrations for undergraduate majors, etc., you can follow at the moment in the press in this country. Well, I would add my uh, my general agreement and, and my hopes to yours in that respect. Hopefully, we will also have an excuse to have you back on the show in the not-too-distant future. Well, uh, I didn't talk about it, but I'm working on a West German industrialist now. Uh, this is a more biographical study, and indeed, I have been very intrigued by his responses. He is also of the generation of 1932, and I got access to his papers when he was a very influential person in the 1970s in Germany and was, in fact, the president of the German Federation of Industries at a time when, on the one hand, you had Brandt and Helmut Schmidt as chancellors, but you also had two oil shocks, you had terrorism, you had uh, the collapse of the Bretton Woods Agreement, etc. So you had major crises, and he was right in the middle of it, and no historian can actually resist when he's offered for the first time papers that have just been catalogued and you have a free run of them and can analyze them. Hopefully, I can come up with a new study of that in a few years' time. Should be fascinating. Thank you very much for joining us today, though. It's been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. Bye-bye. Well, that does it for us here at New Books in German Studies. Once again, we've been talking to Volker Berghahn about journalists between Hitler and Adenauer, from inner emigration to the moral reconstruction of West Germany. Volker's book is available from Princeton University Press as of 2019 and has already garnered advanced praise from other notable names in the field. Journalists Between Hitler and Adenauer is chock full of biography for anyone who wants human interest to anchor their exploration of life and individual transition from Weimar to Nazi and Nazi to post-war Germany. Berghahn's examination of press freedom under Adenauer also has plenty to offer anyone seeking insight about the public sphere in post-war Germany that brings the broader social and cultural history of the period to life. To say nothing of food for thought about the contested role of the free press in democracy and social pressures constraining freedom of expression. That, I'd like to thank you for joining us, and hope to see you next time. Until then.